Hello and welcome to Country Stride, the podcast dedicated to the landscapes, people and heritage of Cumbria and the Lake District. What a difference two weeks makes. Then I was standing freezing cold above Westmoreland Borrowdale. Today it's shorts and t-shirt weather and I'm in the beautiful Eden village of Lazenby with author, illustrator and our guide for today's wonder, Mark Richards. Hello, Mark. Oh, hello, David. It's a magical place. So for those who haven't been here before, and I count myself in their numbers, we're kind of in the heart of the Eden Valley, would you say? Very significant part of the Eden Valley. Uh, we're just about 15 miles from Penrith to our southwest, uh, right in the valley with... Um, Kirk Oswald, which is also known as KO, just across the valley from us here, uh, and on this railway, which is such a, a fundamental part of the village. Well, that very much is the clue to today's podcast, isn't it, Mark? And a bit like trains, you wait three years for a Cumbrian train podcast to come along, and then two come within weeks of each other. The omnibus editions, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> So we've been wanting to do a podcast about this most iconic, beloved of British railways for, well, pretty much since we started Country Stride. We hadn't quite found the right person. And then our diaries didn't align. And then I think COVID came along. But we have the right person now. And talk us through the railway, Mark, and also our guest today. Well, the railway ostensibly runs from Leeds to Carlisle, but the famous bit is from Settle in Yorkshire and runs to Ribblehead and uh, leads on up to Carlisle. And our guest today? Our guest today is Stan Abbott from Durham, who uh, is a writer and a travel authority on many places abroad as well as at home. So he's a, a man of the world. Stan has published this lovely book uh, fairly recently called Walking the Line, which does exactly what it says. He's walked from Settle to Carlisle, talking a little bit not only about the landscapes that he has come to love, but also the history, the heritage of this incredible line and some of the scenery, some of the towns, the villages around it. And today we've got a relatively short walk Oh, the short walk today, uh, we're getting on the train. We're heading uh, up the valley to Langwathby. And we will walk back from there on a kind of... I mean, this is one of the great joys, actually, of the route that Stan has pulled out, is you can use the train to Mm. enjoy these beautiful linear walks. And you know what, Mark, for me, this is wonderful. I've never been to Lazenby before, and I've never done this bit of walking, so I cannot wait. And the weather, we should just say, I mean, this is perfect blue sky wall to wall absolutely fabulous right we shall go and meet stan who is just over there on the platform lovely and empty there's nobody here mark i think either everybody's gone to work already or well i don't know what any other reason there would be it's just us they're, they're commuting Gosh, it's so warm here. 
the sun is bouncing off the platforms, off the lines, off the cottages that you can see surrounding the station. There's a, what appears to be a, a mot to the east of me. You've got the church behind it and a Celtic cross on the horizon, probably a war memorial. The houses are almost uniformly red sandstone, which is very much the style of the Eden Valley. And it's the perfect day for me to introduce and discover a great deal more about you, Stan. Lovely to see you. And lovely to see you too, here on the Costa del Eden on this wonderful day. <laughs> yes. Now, let's get a measure of where you come from. You're a South Country man, aren't you? No, I'm certainly not a South Country man. I'm a, a Geordie by birth. Uh, I spent a few years in Leeds and a few more years in Upper Wensleydale, and now I live in Durham. Now, what made you think that the Settled Carlisle deserved your attention? Well, my relationship with the Settled Carlisle line goes back to the, the big campaign to save the line. If you recall, it was a six-year battle to stop it being closed. And at the time, I was living in Hawes in Upper Wensleydale, and I was a freelance journalist primarily. I think myself and Alan Whitehouse, who was then at the Yorkshire Post, between us probably wrote more about that closure battle than anyone else. So Alan and I said we ought to publish a book about this. And when we knew that the line was saved, I felt that we should do a book of walks on the line, including a linear route from Leeds all the way to Carlisle, which we called unimaginatively the Settle to Carlisle Way, even though it starts in Leeds. A few years later, I thought, well, I've never actually walked the whole thing. I've only walked sections of it. And I thought it'd be nice to actually do it. So... I planned it, I got a publisher, Saraband, and then Covid happened, so I got two days under my belt and then had to put it on hold. And then it was it was kind of done at a dash the minute the Covid restrictions were lifted. It's not a book that you would take if you want to know, do I, you know, exit the field at the third cow on the left? It'll tell you the way I walked. Now, there is a Harvey Maps version of this route. It's not my preferred route. I innovated as I went, and my ambition was really always, where possible, to keep the line in sight, but not be a slave to it, because if there's a better walk to be had... For example, I stick west of the line on the limestone, going up Ribblesdale, whereas the official route, if you like, takes east of the line through a lot of bogs <laughs> I, I don't go a lot on that so <laughs> go for the nice walking go for the good views and go for the stories So how long is your particular journey? It's 90 something miles whereas the railway does it in 72 One of the benefits of travelling on the train is you get wonderful views out of the windows but perhaps you, what you don't get is the sense of the scale of the landscape and the walking actually helps you in that way well, it's not just that, but it's how did the Victorian engineers and surveyors look at the landscape and then decide how to thread the line through it. And remember, this is not a country branch line. This is a high-speed main line. 
The curves are gentle, the gradients are gentle, it's 1 in 100. If you go over Shap on the West Coast Main Line, it's 1 in 80, and that was a problem at the time. It's a good railway, and the structures are solid. Midland Railway's architecture here, you've spoken about the red sandstone in the Eden Valley, but you'll see the same station buildings in Yorkshire built out of millstone grit or good limestone. So it's, it's a way to admire the, the, the manner in which the railway leaps across gills, the way it disappears beneath the fells when it has to, and the way it maintains a straight and level course by clinging to the fell sides and not winding along the valley floors. You mentioned the Midland. That might explain the, the hotel or the pub in the village is called... The Midland Hotel, and you'll find a great many Midland hotels throughout the country from, uh, I believe there's a big one at Derby, which was where the Midland Railway was headquartered, but um, you'll see them, it's quite um, unprepossessing little villages, the good old Midland Hotel. So the plan for today is... Okay, so we're here at Lazenby. We're going to get the train one stop to Langwathby and then walk back here. Langwathby is one of the larger villages in the Eden Valley, partly because it's it's on the route over Hart side. Um, it's a route that I've walked a lot of times, not least because it's one that you can do with the kids. It's generally quite easy walking. There's two principal alternatives. One is to stick close to the river and visit Lacey's Caves, uh, which we can talk more about. Uh, and the other is to go by Long Meg Stone Circle, which is one of the largest stone circles in the country and also one of the oldest. Hard to put a precise date on it. That's another story which is very dear to my heart. Absolutely. Well, the train's due uh, in a few minutes, uh, so we'll wait to hear the exciting sound. It won't be steam, though, will it? It certainly won't be steam. It'll be a diesel multiple unit, probably two carriages, but maybe four. Here it is. Well, the dog seems to recognise something's happening. And here comes the train. I think we'll have to walk towards it. Well, we're on our way, coming into Langwithby proper. We've just left the station, the train's gone. In fact, a second train came and went, so it's uh, real busy here. The birds are singing. There's a lovely lot of uh, violets on the bank there. It's gorgeous, isn't it? This sense of beginnings of spring, it's marvellous. Langwithby is a significant, big green in the village. Uh, and it's on the old road that went over the Hartside Pass to that annex bit of Cumbria, over the Pennine watershed. 
uh, Hartside Pass over to Alston and Nanted and that Tyne Valley setting. So it's always had a, an important role on a bridging point on the Eden. And, and the name Langwathby, the Long Ford, maybe over the Eden? Yeah, and it's obviously a, a Viking name illustrating the influence of the Vikings all across the north. The Boo as it would be in Scandinavian tongues, meaning a settlement at the end. And Lang, of course, is long. Mostly it's a centre for local agricultural industry, you know, there's a big feed mill and things like that. Um, it used to have um, an ostrich farm that you could visit back in the days when people thought that they could make a mint out of ostriches very quickly. <laughs> the other thing that's quite interesting here is that one of the great north air ambulances is is based here in fact just over the other side of the railway from us and that's because it's a geographically sensible place to put it when you consider both the work that the air ambulance has to do which could be anything from accidents on the fells to motorway accidents and the hospitals that in general terms it will take people to so you've got Preston one way Newcastle the other way and sometimes Middlesbrough. After the most absorbing podcast we did with Peter Rook which gave us a sort of a, the sequence in which these railway companies came about what we call the Shap railway was already in place before the Settle Carlisle had its beginnings, can you give us a sense of when it came about and what was the reason? Well, we're talking about an age that was called the age of railway mania. And it was also the Victorian age when there was a real sense that pretty much anything could be achieved if you put your mind to it. And the Midland Railway was a very ambitious company, but it was sandwiched between rivals to the west and the east. So you had the the west coast line to Scotland going up over Shap, and then you had um, on the east coast going north from York to Newcastle and up via Berwick. And the Midland had passengers in Scotland but it could only take them as far as Ingleton in the Yorkshire Dales. And there, although there's a viaduct connecting the end of their line with the end of what was called the Little North Western Line, the passengers had to go all the way down into the village and back up the other side. And as often as not, they'd watch the back end of the Little North Western train disappearing. So the Little North Western linked where? It linked Ingleton with the... West Coast Main Line, a few miles south of Bay, and the Midland saw that the only way it was going to get its passengers safely north was by building its own line. The way it chose to do this was by leaving the line that ran up to Carnforth at Settle and going through the fells and up the Eden Valley and into Carlisle. It got an Act of Parliament to enable it to do this. And then when its rival, the North Western, saw that the Midland was really serious about this, it offered a deal. But Parliament, which was terribly hung up about free trade and competition at that time, said it had to go ahead and build it in the interests of free competition. And so George Allport, the Midland headman, the Midland director, resolved to build a high-speed line even though he might have got away with building something cheaper and allowing his trains to run up the west coast. The Midland could have come up with a cheaper solution. It might have had steeper gradients. It might have had tighter curves. 
Um, it might have gone nearer to the villages and towns that it served, but it chose not to. It stuck with it, made its own fast line through the hills. But to do that required the building of some fine viaducts of which Ribblehead is simply the most famous and iconic. Um, my favourite is probably Arden Gill in Dentdale because it's very high, it's built out of dent marble. If you blink you'll miss it if you're on the train but it goes across this lovely drove road in the bottom of a gill. It's the iconography of, of all the buildings from the station buildings up to the viaducts. Well, we got a, a measure of uh, the Act of Parliament and the, the energy that went into setting this up. We'll go a little bit further and uh, we'll consider our setting a little bit more. Lovely wooden footbridge over Brigglebeck. Lovely name, that. You know, this is sort of romance in... Uh, concept of the name. I don't actually know what Briggle means, but we've come down to an area with slabs on it over a, a marsh area, uh, and it's an older car, an authentic natural landscape we're witnessing here between Langworthby and Winskill. We pass some gorse, which explains the name Winskill, which is a variant of Winscale, the barns among the gorse, and we passed a tractor liberating the manure, let's say. Aroma was distinct, it was slurry with the fringe on top, and we got our boots, Stan. Aye, unfortunately uh, we have. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, let's get back to the Settle Carlisle. So, listeners have a bit of a sense of the geography of it. Where does it actually run? What did it link together? Well, it links the exceptionally pleasant market town of Settle with Carlisle. And... The geography of it is such that you can follow the line of the Ribble River northwards towards Ribble Head, which, as the name suggests, is where the River Ribble rises on its way to the Irish Sea. And then you've got an interlude of high fells until you reach the headwaters of the River Eden, which, of course, is actually the only place at which the line crosses the Pennine watershed. It very briefly ah. goes into the headwaters of the Ure. And it's interesting that because um, just to go back to the line closure story, the manager appointed to close the line was a guy called Ron Cotton and he had a hunch that the line could actually do a job. And so he was a bit of a fifth columnist. And he needed more time to prove that the Dales Rail service could work. And so he made this discovery that the line strayed away from the Northwest Transport Users Consultative Committee territory into the Northeast Transport Users Consultative Committee <laughs> and said that they had to post the closure notice notices all over again and delay the public hearings, which was very, very clever. Exceptionally clever. Once you get to just beyond Garsdale at the line summit at A's Gill, it's downhill pretty much all the way to Carlisle. But you'll know that the River Eden is not a gentle meander across wide open plains. A lot of it in the northern section is in a fairly deep gorge, mm -hmm. sandstone gorge, and particularly around Armourthwaite, which was where there was a, a really quite bad landslip 
a few years ago that closed the line for over a year. Um, that's the only bit where you'll go uphill again, all the way to Carlisle. There's a bit of an uphill. And then eventually it cuts across the Eden Plain around Wetherill and comes into Carlisle from the southeast. So there's the actual journey of the train. Uh, you've done the walk. Other sort of, let's say, three real highlights that you will always linger in your mind, associate in your mind the magic of the journey. Yeah, well, I think the first one I'm going to pick is the summit of Blee Moor because I've done the Three Peaks Walk in Yorkshire more times than I care to think. And the worst part of the Three Peaks Walk is the slog up Wernside. It's interminable. You go right up the long northern shoulder of Wernside and it just goes on forever. It's a grind. It's a grind. Of course, that's what Wernside means, the grindstones on the side of the hill that they Very good, pour it. yeah. So I had never actually climbed Blee Moor, which is a distinct summit, or just about a shoulder of Wernside. And when you leave behind Ribblehead Viaduct, you climb up the way the old tramway ran, where all the building materials went up and down for the ventilation shafts, and also where they, a lot of the spoil came out when they were excavating the tunnel. And then you get to the top and you get this fantastic view back towards Ingleborough, and on towards Penny Ghent, but north into the upper waters of uh, Dentdale. And it's just this beautiful panorama that unfolds before you. It's quite steep down into Dentdale. And of course, the railway doesn't bother with that. The railway emerges from the depths of Blee Moor and then dashes off across the fell side towards Dent Station. My next highlight, well, let me think. I'd probably say. Lady Anne Clifford's Way, really just for the commanding views it gives you of the Upper Eden. Which, of course, we did as a countryside episode with Sheila Gordon, the curator of the Lady Anne's Way. We did a wonderful section of the highway from Garsdale Head, didn't we? And uh, listeners will remember that, cut back by a lens from Hellgill Bridge. But you're right, it's a fabulous bit of uh, route. As you say, you come across through the isolated settlement of Lunds and it brings you gradually down until you get to Pendragon Castle. It's one of the putative birthplaces of King Arthur, if he existed. And um, the guy who used to own it was called Raven Frankland, which is a marvellous name given to him by his father, who always had an ambition of owning a castle and bought it for next to nothing at an auction. For the third one, I'd probably go for the stretch between Langwathby and Armathwaite, but very specifically, the bit that we're walking today, where you have two alternatives. You can stick close to the river and visit Lacey's Caves, which were hewn out of the red sandstone by Mr Lacey um, because he wanted to imitate some of the more natural caves further north. Corby Castle um, at Wetherill has wonderful caves by the river. There's On the other bank of the river, there's a, a nun's retreat. Basically a, a place to take as house guests, I think. Um, 
He also had a, a rather unsavoury connection with the other alternative route, which is via Long Meg Stone Circle, because he was the guy who tried to blow it up. Oh no! Uh, perhaps we'll talk about that oh. legend when we're actually there a, a, a little later. Well, we'll we'll plot a bit closer to the majesty of Long Meg, but we've got to get up the hill to Winskill, so we'll leave this older car and the dancing Briggle back and get over these slabs. Made it to the top of the first pasture. Come to a wicket gate and uh, to the left of the wicket gate is the conventional gateway with sandstone pillars. But actually by the wicket gate, creating like a kissing gate effect, is a stone, but it's not your conventional stone. I think there's something going on with that stone. It's got a straight face on the west side. Perhaps, Stan, you can explain it because you're a, a man of well, stones. It's um, completely enveloped at its base by the roots of the tree, um, and it stands about waist high. It, it would have been vertical, I think, until the tree pushed it. But um, I'm looking at the other face, which has got quite deep abrasions all the way across, and it reminds me of a not dissimilar stone at Castlerigg Stone Circle that used to stand separately from the circle, um, but was moved by a farmer at some point to close by the enclosure wall and it has very similar marks which were caused by ploughing so I'm wondering if this stone used to belong in the middle of the field here and if it did was it a single standing stone or might it have been part of a larger structure in Neolithic or Bronze Age times. We've arrived in Hunsonby, the green in the midst of this gorgeous little, almost a hamlet, I suppose it is a hamlet, Hunsonby. And it's so authentic to the Eden Valley, this place. The birds are singing in many tunes. There's a pigeon like you'd expect. No competition apart from the merry tiller in the background. So somebody's tilling this soil and of course that's what this valley is all about. It's a live agricultural landscape of communities like dear Hunsonby. What can you tell us about these sort of villages in your encounters, Tan? Well, my abiding thought about Eden Valley villages is that it's almost as if there was a factory producing them because you think you've seen them all and then one day you round a corner into a little village that you've never, for whatever reason, chanced upon. And there it is, it's another one, with the red sandstone cottages intermixed with a few whitewashed ones, beautifully kept gardens invariably, very often a green. We've got a cherry tree in the middle of the green here. That's going to be in bud and flower soon, it'll be very pretty. And it's always, you know, just the, the doves and the pigeons cooing and maybe the sound of a rookery not so far off. And, and it's just rural, idyll. Why are they taking all these film crews to the South Downs and places like that? Because this is the most idyllic part of gentle lowland rural England in my book. Of all the Eden Valley villages you've encountered on your travels, is the one that probably stands out more than any others? 
a couple actually, because um, we got on the train at Lazenby, but the full name of that station is Lazenby and Kirk Oswald, and for some reason, and I can't really explain it, I'd never been to Kirk Oswald, but Kirk Oswald was the preeminent settlement at one time, it had the market and so on, and it still retains elements of that grandeur, whilst also being quaint with little cottages and lovely gardens and some fine looking pubs and then if you go on from Kirk Oswald eventually you get to a rather curious village on the top of a ridge called Rockcroft and I would just mention that because it has some of the finest views in all Cumbria because you look right across towards Blencathra, you can see across into the other side of the Solway Firth and so on. It's just got these marvellous views. Breaking off from this wonderful interlude along this gorgeous little lane that seems to go on forever. We've left Hunsonby, we're heading north rather like the Settle Carlisle itself. The government said, you've got to build this thing. So they bit the bullet and got on with doing it. But boy, oh boy, it was a huge civil engineering undertaking uh, and manpower. So can you give us a little bit of a picture of all that endeavour? Yeah, well, it's sometimes dubbed the last great navy-built railway because subsequent to that, there was a lot more mechanisation. It wasn't that there was none, but by and large, the heavy lifting was, was done by tough men who lived tough lives. At its peak, there were about 6,000 navvies working. And the popular conception of this is that they came over from Ireland, built the canals, and then moved on to the railways. In actual fact, a lot of the people who worked building the line came from much nearer by. And, and if you look at the census records, as I have for some of the Navi settlements, you know, they, they might have come from Lancashire, they might have actually come from the Dales. You know, a lot came from within a 50-mile radius. But the real tough guys, a lot of them were Irish, that's true. And they lived in these shanty towns, which had romantic names drawn from Crimea. How topical. Um, like Sebastopol and Jericho and so on. Could you paint us a picture of life in the shanty towns of this working environment? Well, we know it was rough. Um, we know that because people died of infectious diseases like smallpox and people ended up in court for violence and drunkenness. In terms of what were they like physically, well, you can still see where some of the huts sat at places like Ribble Head. Um, if you want to see what the buildings were actually like, someone salvaged a rather typical shantytown structure from when they were building the Nidderdale Reservoirs. And you can see that on the outskirts of Bainbridge in Wensleydale. Um, and you can see from that, they were corrugated iron, they were wood, they were rude and simple. There would have been, in the more permanent structures, and a lot of the ones at Ribblehead were there for some time, there would have been places of worship, schools for the children, bars, of course. Though having said that, I mean, sometimes navvies would be paid in part with tokens for spending in in the townships themselves and 
by that read the bar. <laughs> there was a lot of drinking, there was gambling, there was violence, and there was disease. So if you go to Chapeldale, uh, which is about a mile and a half, two miles from Ribblehead Viaduct, you'll see there's a mass grave there. And they were mostly smallpox victims, so it would have been the navvies themselves and their women and children. The rather remarkable thing about it is there's very little written record at all. Uh, there's one person wrote a diary that came to light uh, in Australia, of all places, I believe. And you'll find some records in Lancaster Guardian and other newspapers, you know, usually relating to magistrates' hearings after there'd been trouble. But there was very little record of how people lived and and of course when they left the shanties left with them one of them was much more about making bricks and uh, doing engineering work on the tramway engines that kind of thing and people tended to live at one called batty wife batty wife hole um which is very near the actual source of the river ripple the um tunnel bluemore tunnel how long is that that's quite handy to there um, it's about a mile and a quarter. I, I used to be able to tell you exactly how many yards it was, but it's the longest tunnel on the line. Bleemore is where it takes you from uh, the Ribble watershed up into uh, Dentdale and across into the Eden. Dent being the highest station in England, is that correct? It's called the highest mainline station in England. It may or may not be the highest station. I think the main line is an important qualifier. Of course, it's miles from Dent. <laughs> yes, we walked A lot it. harder to get back to than it is to get to. <laughs> of course, the Ribblehead Viaduct, which is such an icon, I don't know how many arches is it. Is it 19? 24. It's built of local limestone, which is part of its problem, actually. In their haste to get the viaduct open, they failed to remove some wooden scaffolding poles when they put down the tarmac decking, which was supposed to be the waterproof decking that kept water out of the viaduct. In time, these rotted, and so the whole viaduct structure got full of water, and with it being limestone, it was water-soluble. So you had water leaking out, not just through the mortar, washing the mortar out, but also actually penetrating the limestone blocks which would then you'd then get freeze and thaw action so pieces would fall off they've done two lots of very significant repairs the first one was when they redecked everything and relined all the arches that hadn't already been done well that gives us a sense of the let's say hardship and the realities of it all um well Let's get back to our fantasy world, which is here and now and the arrival of spring. We'll just march on towards Long Meg. Yeah, we may as well have a sandwich at Long Meg, I think. Did you catch that, Dave? I did. Well, we've arrived at Long Meg and her daughters. You're in an agricultural field with ash trees hoary old ash trees uh, adjacent to the farm and I've been here probably 30 times in the 20 years I've been in this in Cumbria. My wife and I are drawn to this place as are many people and in fact today there are a few people here. The setting you can see to the east the Pennines, the High Pennines and Melmamy Fell towards Crossfell. Uh, to the west you can just see Blencathra 
And then actually you can see the Helvellyn range. So it has a great backdrop. And what we've got here fundamentally is a great irregular circle of stones. And on the outside of the setting is a, a sandstone tall megalith. It's a very old site and um, Paul Frodsham, who's one of the leading archaeologists in the region, he led some quite recent work at the site, which more clearly identified the site of a further settlement to the north. The circle is slightly flattened at its northeast side, and this is because the circle probably followed an earlier settlement, and there may have been a further stone circle beneath where the farmhouse is now. Some of the evidence that they were able to get through digging there has enabled them to date this somewhere around about three and a half thousand BC, which would make it potentially older than the Ring of Brogga in Orkney and thus one of the very oldest stone circles in the whole country. Um, that's in the broader landscape sense because what we can't easily do is say exactly when the stones were erected but we know things were going on here at least three and a half thousand years ago. Why here? Well it's probably at the conjunction of water routes via the River Eden and the overland route up over Hartside Pass. And this is where we find some of the best circles in Cumbria is at the conjunctions of water and land routes. We've got a circle of an uncountable number of boulders because if you count them and reach the same number twice, then you yourself will be turned to stone. Um, I think I got to 63 last time, and then when I checked it, it was 61 or something. So you just have to exercise a little bit of caution not to get the same number twice. Um, Longmeg herself is from sandstone and was in all likelihood quarried by Lacey's Caves or in that general vicinity on the River Eden itself. It has unusually a certain amount of what we might call rock art. Petroglyphs is the more technical term because we don't know if it was art or if it was something of more directional or other significance. The, the great mystery about all things Neolithic and Bronze Age is that we know so very, very little because there are no written records. So speculation will flood in and replace concrete evidence wherever it can. And, and then, of course, in subsequent years, legend grows up. And there's a particular legend about this place um, that concerns Long Meg and her daughters. Long Meg was a sorceress and her rival was a guy called Cole Hen. And Cole Hen was very jealous of Long Meg because uh, she was a force for good and he essentially wasn't. He was haunted by her. He could hear her taunts in the wind and so he lured her into a trap and unleashed all his powers against her, as a result of which her daughters, who were actually her pupils in sorcery, were all cast into stone, whilst Longmeg herself was... Um, she had one last fling and managed to turn Colhen into a tree, and then she was turned into a pillar of red sandstone, which is the monolith on the edge of the circle. I believe there is some way that this, the spell can be unleashed and all the stones will dance again, but 
um, I don't think anyone's quite cracked that one yet. And then you have the, the setting on an alignment. What do you think is aligned with? There is a, a, an actual definite alignment here, which is with the winter solstice aligned through the circle, through Long Mega Self, and it goes more or less towards the summit of Blencathra. Um, it is presumed by a lot of people that all stone circles are astronomical calendars. Those are the exception rather than the rule. It's undoubtedly the case at some circles, but positive alignments at, at circles here well if you kind of read it all up you know someone will say well there's an alignment with um, the edge of such and such a fell and and you kind of think well that's not very significant my own personal view is that different size circles served a variety of different functions i think you've got to see them in a context of a civilization about which we know almost nothing and which has not necessarily got any parallels with our own civilization now. So to presume that they're cathedrals is to place upon it our contemporary religious interpretation. So that's probably wrong. Um, to automatically assume by the same token that they're all astronomical calendars or predictors of the seasons is wrong for the same reasons. I think the smaller circles are a bit of... Have you seen that great big circle at Long Meg? Well, I fancy a bit of that for us. And that's why I think you get these quite small circles in some parts of Cumbria. And they may have been little more than meeting places. Because things... Precious objects like the Langdale axe heads are found at some circles. That does suggest that trading took place. And my interpretation of the trading is that people didn't make enormously long journeys. They made relatively short journeys. And then a bit like, you know, Wells Fargo or whatever, the, the parcel was passed on to somebody else at one of these places so I think meeting places but there's a lot more going on here at Long Meg because it is such a big site and it was such a complex site what we're seeing now is just what remains talking of remains there was a moment in history when it wasn't going to be here at all yes well the, the story goes that Colonel Lacey our, our friend uh, from Newcastle, who acquired all the lands by the River Eden and carved his caves there, thought he could get rid of the stones and make better agricultural land and sent a, a team of uh, workers off with dynamite to blast the stones to smithereens. But before they could actually carry out the deadly deed, uh, there was a huge thunderclap and, and, of course, they knew all the legends surrounding the stones and ran off terrified. And thus they remain here now as they were. Wonderful story. I love this spot. It's so calm. This is a place where you can sense the enormity of time and our quiet little place in it. We've come through the farm, Long Meg Farm, with its cattle. I mean, the last time I was in the area, there was lots of Frisians, and you could see them grazing in there. Anyway, we've come on through, uh, down a lane, coming by Little Gill, and uh, it's time to think back to the railway, because that was what we were here to, <laughs> ostensibly to talk about. It had a working life. What uh, success was it? 
it's had a very, very significant impact on the local farming economy because all of a sudden farmers could get their milk to Leeds and Bradford and even beyond for the next morning. And that was transformative. And even though the stations were some distance from the towns, that impact as a local railway, in inverted commas, was still significant. Um, was it ever the single main route to Scotland? No. Um, I think that there would have always been more passengers carried on the West Coast and the East Coast lines, but it was significant. And, of course, it continued to carry Anglo-Scottish traffic express trains until relatively recently and I can certainly remember catching the train from St Pancras the Thames Clyde Express because it was a lot later than the last train on the east coastline when I was living in Leeds so there you go during its working life it did the job it was purposed to do um, it had its share of troubles two quite significant accidents around Aysgill Summit, uh, one when an express train ran into the back of a, a pilot engine and all the gas that fired the lighting system for the carriages, that all caught fire. There were a lot of casualties. And there was another on the southbound line when a, a train simply ran out of puff and the train behind it passed a red signal. So it, it's had its ups and downs. But... It uh, came upon uh, leaner times, and was it the beaching cuts that threatened it? The Settle Carlisle was, was never drawn into the beaching net, actually, surprisingly enough. Newcastle Carlisle, or Carlisle-Newcastle, was um, because it had high running costs, because it had a lot of manually operated level crossings. Thankfully, that never came to pass. No, the Settle Carlisle nearly met its maker rather later. You'll recall the closure of the Waverley Line, Edinburgh to Carlisle, named after the Waverley novels of Sir Walter Scott. Um, a great miss, and as you'll know, some of that has already reopened, and there's talk of bringing it back all the way to Carlisle. If you kind of go with the popular conspiracies, the Waverley Line was closed as a quid pro quo for the government at the time electrifying the West Coastline. I think in a, in a way you can kind of bracket the settled Carlisle in with that. It's a little different, but what you have to see is a British rail under extreme financial pressure from the government, under great pressure to lose miles and lots of them. The notion was that if there were no more goods trains that were unbraked, which is to say it's the guard at the back of the train who operates the brakes, then they can all go up and down the west coast. So British Rail embarked on what's generally known as a, a pattern of closure by stealth. So first of all, they got rid of the Thames Clyde Expresses and substituted a Nottingham to Glasgow Express. Then that went, so there were just two rather low-quality trains a day each way between Leeds and Carlisle. And everybody was expecting the announcement that closure was planned, and it, it duly came. Then what was generally done at the time was that the repair costs were always inflated. So British Rail took the highest possible cost, which was actually the cost of building a like-for-like -like replacement of Ribblehead Viaduct, 
and it was came out at, if I recall, somewhere between four and six million pounds, which may not sound like a lot in today's money, but we're going back to the 1980s, it was a lot. So they announced the closure, but unusually, there was a, a really effectively a cross-party, a cross-community campaign that also had the benefit of some exceptionally good minds behind it, really good people like John Whiteleg, for example, who went on to become one of the most eminent eco-transport planners on the on the planet really and the local authorities with only one exception were dead set against closure so they formed a powerful coalition they brought in consultants who said that Ribblehead Viaduct was not spent it could be put back together and in good state to last for another 20 or more years for no more than 2.3 million pounds and when it actually came to it, that was almost exactly what it did cost wow. to put it in a good state again. The campaign succeeded because it was a broad coalition and because it just dragged on and on and on. And that was partly because of the very clever work of, of Ron Cotton, who, as I believe I mentioned earlier, was the sixth columnist within British Rail who believed the line had a purpose if he could only market it in such a way that it could prove its purpose. Eventually it came to be realised that the traffic hadn't gone up just because everyone wanted to make one last trip. It had gone up because people knew about it, they wanted to come, they wanted to travel it, they wanted to do it more and more often. And then, of course, when the occasional Dales Rail service became a lightly subsidised daily service, well, that was the real game-changer. Once that happened, it became politically more and more difficult to close because it would have almost certainly led to a long and expensive judicial review. Now, Michael Portillo likes to say that he saved the Settle and Carlisle line. Um, he was undoubtedly the minister who put his signature at the salvation document. But the document itself was bizarre because it was written like a closure notice and it was changed at the 11th hour <laughs> to become a reprieve. How marvellous. Mm. <laughs> Well, that's been a wonderful walk through there. We come through the meadows, got to Eden Bridge. Just before we get to Lazenby itself, we can admire the river, which is lovely to see from this point. Uh, but it gives me a chance to slip in the wonderful quickfire questions, which really always goes to the heart of the matter. What was your first Lakeland memory? Oh, goodness. Uh, probably family holidays. We used to stay on the farm at Watt Endleth, the Hanging Valley up above Derwent Water. My abiding memory was of the huge black beams in the bedroom, which my mum used to say, night, night, sleep tight, mind the bugs don't bite. And I thought these huge black beams were the bugs and I was <laughs> terrified of them. And my sister and I would sit at the bedroom window and watch the rain beating against the pane. And so for me in my childhood, there's an abiding memory of, of Lake District rain. Uh, have you got a favourite fell? Do you know, I think it's probably Scar Fell, actually. Just because of the variety of routes that you can take, it can be more challenging than Scarfell Pike and fewer people climb it. Yeah. And, you know, Wasdale is probably my favourite valley and lake. Uh, Herdrick or Red Squirrel? 
A red squirrel, because the red squirrel fits in with the landscape. The herd which she defines it and not always for the best. Have you a particularly favourite memorable Lakeland walk you'd like to share with listeners? Well, the circumnavigation of Waswater. Um, the screes. When yeah, uh, the screes. When when I was in my youth, I could leap from boulder to boulder in the screes while others picked their way through them. I'm now in the pick your way carefully through them you category. A, but uh, <laughs> you, you were a boulder when you were younger. Yeah. <laughs> uh, when you're on a long walk or uh, out and about, uh, where do your thoughts tend to wander? Well. I'm one of these people who, if I walk in a group, I'll, I'll suddenly realise I'm on my own. I've either dropped back or I've accelerated in front because I actually find a very powerful linkage between physical exertion and driving the imagination. So I tend to think of things that I'm going to write about. Yeah. Have you an idea what a perfect Lakeland day would consist of? I think if I go back to where I spend most of my Lake District time, then it's probably a walk up Cap Bells, the northern shoulder. So you've got two craggy bits that are just a wee little bit of a scramble. Come back down, have a nice hot bath, laze a bit in front of the log fire, maybe force myself to wander 10 minutes up to the Swinside Inn. You've got it covered there, all right. Um, if you were the Prime Minister for a day, is there one thing you would wish to occur that would safeguard the landscapes of Cumbria? I think the reintroduction of more appropriate vegetation in the upper reaches of the Eden in particular, but also the Mont de Greta and everywhere else, combined with more intelligent management of the lower parts of the watercourses. In other words, returning the rivers to something closer to the state that they were in so that they're better able to withstand the extreme weather events that we seem to be getting possibly more often. Yes, the re-wiggling and such like. When the time comes and a few friends gather, is there somewhere special that your mortal remains, or ashes may lie? Um, my wife and I have an, a notion that it would be nice to end up in the churchyard at Little Town. In the Newlands Valley. Well, it's a gorgeous place. Stan, you've been great company. Thank you for spending the time with us. Thank you, Mark. Journey's end, back in Lazenby, after a very amiable wander, not too long, Mark, about five miles, uh, but exploring parts of the Eden Valley I've not been to before, and very nice it was too. Of course, I love Long Meg anyway, but I could see your eyes light up. Mm. I, I took a photograph of you standing, looking at it, awestruck, I thought. I didn't realise we were going to go there today, I hadn't quite clocked what the route was. The photos you see online don't do it justice in any way at all. It's absolutely huge. It's, what, three, four times as big as Castle Rigstown Circle? It's huge. Yeah, you could play a game of American baseball there. There we go. Perhaps we should try and get that together. <laughs> uh, no, I thought it was great. Carlisle Settle line, just 
really nice to hear the history really, you know, the ups and downs of this iconic line and Stan really brought that to life. And I mean, actually for me, I think one of my favorite moments was that lovely village we got to and just talking about some of these Eden villages because it's this kind of rolling, beautiful, expansive landscape, isn't it? That just, you discover new bits all the time. Fabulous countries. Yeah, you can go to each one and feel fresh and renewed every time you see them. You you sense the sense that the community has been there forever. And, Mm. And it's a lovely continuity. All that lovely red sandstone. Right, we're going to bring things to a close. Our usual housekeeping, this is episode number... 78. Oh, goodness me. Uh, For 77 previous episodes, you can go to www.countrystride.co.uk. We're on social media, Mark. Oh, on Facebook and Twitter, at Countrystride1. If you like what we do, if you want to support us, there are three ways to do that. You can either recommend this podcast to your family and friends who might love the lakes and love Cumbria. You can buy our books at www.countrystride.co.uk. There's a range of titles there if you love walking in the Lake District, not least our most recent, The Oldswater Walking Companion. Uh, You can also gift us some cash uh, via Patreon. So for as little as £2 a month, Uh, less than the price of a cup of tea, you can support what we do. And we've got a few names from the last couple of weeks, Mark, who've supported us. Richard Earnshaw, who I think we have a podcast lined up with in the future. Thank you, Richard. Nancy Taylor, Lucy Bessant, Helen Roberts, Mark Kenny, and Paul Weston. Thank you to all of you. As I say, if you like the podcast and you want to support us, www.countrystride.co.uk. Next up, I think we're climbing a mountain, Mark. Oh, I thought we were going up Hill Girl Head or something. <laughs> Maybe. We do a good mountain, aren't we, after all? Into the heart of the fells again and back to uh, one of our favourite stomping grounds. So, yeah, cannot wait for that. We have a guest we featured before. Yeah, old George Kitchen. We went up Weatherlam with him. We did. George knows his stuff. So, yeah, back into the fells for our next country stride. And then we've got, I think, in about this kind of order, we've got Kirby Lonsdale, we've got Walsdale again, hopefully with yes. Eric Robson, and Coniston Water to talk about Arthur Ransom. Oh, Arthur I'm... Ransom. So that's us saying goodbye for now. Thank you very much for joining us on Country Stride, and we will see you next time.